0: You're listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. Our prayers that this encourages you in the Lord. Everybody today, I'd like to say a personal welcome to our virtual crowd as well. We're thankful that you have the privilege to join in, in this way, whether it's this morning or whenever you catch it sometime this week. We're thankful for your attendance in that way. And so if you have your Bible this morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2 verses 42 through 47, Acts chapter 2 verses 42 through 47. And this is the last in our our series that we've done in the month of August, Covenant Foundations, Our Core Values. And so we've taken one of our core values each Sunday uh, and and the core values are Bible, prayer, discipleship, and mission. And and our hope in those specific Sundays was um, just to give you guys a good theological definition of what those things are and, and so that you have a better understanding not only of what they are, but why we have those as our core values. And what we want you to see this morning... Is that uh, the early church, the, the the at the birth of the church, Christ Church, in the Book of Acts, that they also had core values? And what we're going to see is that their core values were Bible, prayer, discipleship, and mission. And so, one thing that we have have tried to communicate over the last few weeks and, and months even is that our core values were not something that we came up with. Okay, and so we, you know, as our elder team, we didn't just meet back there and feel this overwhelming pressure to be super creative and have four words that. Start all started with P. Nothing wrong with that. It can help us remember. But we really just wanted to um, take a simple route and, and, and a route that we felt was, was most biblical and, and to see what defines believers in Scripture. What, what were the core values of, of those that followed Christ in, in the Word of God and thankfully... Those, those are plain. And, and so this morning will be a recap. In Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42 through verse 47, I will read now. And friends, this is the word of the Lord. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, what a great privilege it is that we can gather this morning and open your word. Lord, we know right now that there are many believers across the globe that can't gather this morning. Um, our brothers and sisters on the Gulf Coast and South Louisiana and South Mississippi have spent the last hours boarding up windows and putting sandbags on their doorways and around their houses to try to keep water out as a massive hurricane makes its way for landfall. And so I want to pray for them and that they would be calmed. Lord, I know that they're anxious. I know that they're nervous and they don't know what kind of loss of property or even life they could experience. And so, Lord, I pray that they in this moment would remember your promises um, and the hope that the gospel brings into any and every context. There are also those across this globe this morning that can't gather with other believers because of COVID-19. Um, I, I think I can speak on behalf of everyone that we're tired, we're weary, and we're frustrated. We're, 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 we're so many things as it relates to this pandemic. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would calm our hearts. And Lord, that we would not fix our eyes on what we can see, but we would be people who understand that everything that we see and can touch and feel and hear and smell is fleeting. But your promises are eternal. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us grace towards one another. Um, Father, that we wouldn't join the world in this cutthroat mentality of polarization and different camps and tribalism, but that we would be people of grace. Father, I pray for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan who also probably, they definitely can't gather publicly. I I don't know if they have chosen to do that in secret, but the times there are tumultuous and dangerous. I pray that those brothers and sisters would stay strong and courageous. Father, I pray that they would, even in the face of the darkest evil, still gladly and with great joy, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Father, we know that we can trust you in all of these things as your word plainly tells us that there is nothing that can separate us from your love for those who are in Christ Jesus. What, what can come against your elect? And so, Lord, we Even though we have heavy hearts for many reasons, we do come this morning with glad hearts because of who you are and because of what you've done. And Lord, I pray that in this section of Acts chapter 2 that you would teach us more of what it means to be your people in this life together. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. So context is always important, all right? And, and so in Acts at this point, Peter, the apostle Peter had just preached a sermon, one of the most famous sermons of all time, and thousands of people were saved. It's the sermon that he preached at Pentecost. And, and so something that struck me in this familiar story this week is how different of an experience that this would have been for the apostles. Like they never experienced anything like this as they followed Jesus through his life and ministry. The close they came to Jesus having thousands of followers was in John chapter 6, which after, at the beginning of the chapter He feeds um, thousands of people with just a handful of fish and a handful of bread. And immediately following that Jesus has a lot of followers. But the focus of the followers of Jesus, the thousands of them at this point were the fa- was the fact that He could uh, do miracles and when they are hungry this dude can feed them. They didn't have to work for it. They didn't have to buy it. They didn't have to go anywhere. Like Jesus just created this food. And so they were super excited about Jesus and even in a sense believed in Jesus, but they believed in what he could do for them. And they loved him primarily because of what he could do for their stomachs. And that shows itself midway through John six as they get hungry again and they want more food. And Jesus then tells them what the point of the bread was. And he says, "I, I am the bread. The point of the bread you ate this morning was me. And then he even says some stronger words, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot be my disciple. And at that point, thousands of them, like they bounce, they're out. And at the end of John six, Jesus comes to his own disciples and says, do you want to go too? And Simon Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Keep in mind, they just seen him killed. Now, now they have seen him resurrected. They have now, as Brandon read this morning in Acts chapter 1, Luke's account of the Great Commission. Jesus has commissioned them. So their faith is certainly strengthened, but the context around them um, is, is nothing, absolutely nothing like a Billy Graham crusade. Right, so so we think of thousands being saved in this big, powerful sermon, and and we think altar calls, and we think auditoriums, and we think counselors, and we think this clear gospel message is presented in in a country and in a context where it's okay, and everybody's at at least you know in the last fifty years or so, everybody's been okay with it. Not sure where that's headed now, but in the last fifty years, everybody's been okay with it. The preacher preaches the gospel. He invites people to respond. Counselors come down. People respond. They pray the prayer. They sign the card. They. the hand. They learn about a new church in town. And everybody walks away saying, hey, thousands were saved and it's an exciting thing. And I'm certainly not diminishing any of that, but I want us to understand that that's not the context. Like there's no guarantee. And they probably didn't even have an idea that this would happen after the gospel was proclaimed. They could have easily seen the exact opposite happen and this message be rejected and the apostles and the believers that represented this message be killed. But that's not what happened. What happens is thousands are saved and there's a tremendous move of the Spirit of God. And what we see after this wonderful sermon is we see the church. The church before programs, before budgets, before buildings, before bands. What this is, is a brand new creation and it came by the Father's plan, through the work of the Son and was birthed in the Holy Spirit. And friends, it's beautiful. Like I I don't know any genuine Christian that would read Acts chapter 2 verses 42 through 47 and not just sort of be in awe or inspired. But I think there's a danger there's a danger because we look at Acts 2 and even though we would go, man, that, what a beautiful picture. It's like one of those old vintage photos of our grandparents and we think, man, if it, it would have just been so awesome to, to live back then. And, and so even though we're encouraged and, and we think this is a beautiful picture, as we try to uh, like process that and, and apply that to our lives, we can sort of throw our hands up and say, well, I mean, that was all great and fine and dandy for them, but not me. Like, I could never do that. Or Covenant Church could, could never do those things. And, I, and I, I think there's a danger in us thinking that way. And it's sort of like this. Like, um, so, so for those of you that don't know, I have six children and a wonderful wife. And occasionally on Facebook, Christmas, Easter, beach, I'll, I'll throw a picture on Facebook just of everybody. All right? And, and usually there's some comments, oh, I miss you guys, oh, beautiful pa- uh, family. But, but occasionally I'll read this and somebody will even actually say this, looking at me in the eyes, they'll say, you just have the perfect family. And inside, I'm going, do you have no clue. Mm-hmm. You, you don't even, you don't know what you're talking about. And when you have time, because you'll need time, because there's eight of us, and I have to start with me. If you want to discuss all the issues that we have and what a normal day in the life of the Atchison family, Atchison family looks like, um, I'm not I'm not downplaying. Of course, we, we love one another, but it's far from perfect. But in this age that we live in where we can just put snapshots and pictures up and everybody can see all of these different snapshots, there's a danger that we look at that and think that it's something it's not, I think there's a danger for us to look at this picture of the church in Acts and get discouraged instead of encouraged. Friends, this is a general statement that there's still sin. These are still sinners. And if you keep reading through Acts, you get to chapter five and it starts to rear its ugly head. So this is a general statement. This, this is... These verses are a simple description of what the early church was about. And, and, and when you read the Bible, it's important to make that distinction between what's prescriptive and what's descriptive. Something that's prescriptive, like say if this was prescriptive, then we would read this and we would need to do exactly what it said. We would need to do it, and we would need to replicate it. Because when you go get a prescription, or you have a prescription, you give it to your pharmacist, you are prescribed very specific drugs, very specific amounts, and a time frame in which to take those drugs, and you have to do it to a T if you want those results. Well, this isn't a prescriptive text. This is a simple description of what the early church was about. And so what we'll see today is that this early church had core values, and their core values were Bible, Prayer, discipleship, and mission. So let's dive in. Verse 42. Verse 42 begins this way And they devoted themselves. Now, now the phrase they devoted themselves is one of the most inspiring and dynamic descriptions of the early church. Think about this with me. These are the first words ever said about the church. And there's this idea of devotion and loyalty. They devoted themselves as a springboard for them to launch in this new direction. Now, I want to talk to you just for a second about the original language here. And I know some of you may may annoy you, but but I think it's helpful here. But there's a word in the Greek that's, that's translated as devoted, and it's pros kerato. And then, and then there's another word we'll talk about in a second that comes right before it that doesn't translate into English very well at all, but it's, 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 it actually has tremendous meaning and depth to it that helps us understand. And so this, this word pros, keratos, is devoted. It's a compound word. and the first part, pros, P-R-O-S, is a preposition which means to, toward, or in the direction of. The last part of the word, carterio, is a verb with a root idea to be strong and firm. So, a literal translation of this word is this, to be strong towards something or someone. And when this is used throughout the New Testament, it carries the sense and meaning to be devoted to, to be dedicated, to focus on, to be committed to, or to persist in, listen, some purpose, object, or person. And then there's a neat little word used with it, and the pronunciation is difficult, and it, but the word is E-I-M-I, E-I-M-I. And this Greek word is where we get, and it doesn't translate well, but it's where we get they and themselves, the plural pro pronouns that are on one side of devoted. They devoted themselves. But this word in the Greek, it simply means to be, or to exist, or to to belong. And so the way that these go together and what it means for us, what it meant for them is these young believers aren't devoted to something That's meaningless. They are devoted to this new objective, which something objective is outside of themselves, this new objective being or reality or existence. All right, so so what is it? Now they're devoted together, but it's not a meaningless devotion. And, And E I M I lets us know that why it's not meaningless, it's because they now belong to someone or something. And friends, they they now belong to Jesus. Their identity is in him and not primarily as individuals, but together. Now listen, if if you are a Christian this morning, then your salvation is personal. If you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that means that your sins, your personal sins, were nailed to the cross. And he has saved you as an individual. But what we see here in Acts chapter 2 is the Holy Spirit fall on, listen, them. And so not only as individuals do they belong to Jesus, but now in, in this devotion, and they devote themselves, and the reason they have this loyalty. Is because of whom they belong, because they have this new identity in Jesus Christ. And so their belonging to Jesus created a devotion to him, but not only to him, but to one another. And so what does this look like? Well, it looks like core values. And so because of this new belonging, they have this devotion. And let's see how it fleshes itself out. Look back at verse 42 the middle part and they devoted themselves first to the apostles teaching. And so the, their first core value was the Bible. Of course, they didn't have the Bible, so but the word of God. We're going to unpack this a little bit. I think there's two really important questions to ask before we move on. And the first question is who were the apostles in Luke chapter 6? In Luke chapter 6, says when day came he the speaking of jesus he called his disciples and chose from the 12 whom he named apostles now we need to make a distinction and this is going to sound like a riddle it's going to seem confusing but it's not confusing all right apostles are disciples but all disciples are not apostles a disciple is a learner and an apostle is certainly a learner But the apostles were different than just the ordinary disciple. The apostles were authorized representatives. And so disciple and apostle, those aren't synonyms. In fact, apostle and elder, those aren't synonyms either. Apostles were those specifically who walked with Jesus. They looked into not only Jesus' face after he resurrected, but before he died, and were commissioned specifically by him. In fact, in John, if you have your Bible, I don't know if it'll be on the screen. It's shut off on us. But in John chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus says this to his apostles. He says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, I don't know if you have typically understood that verse, and it's just brought personal encouragement to you, and and, and I don't really want to pour water on you with that, because it is an encouragement to us, but that's not primarily what the Scripture is talking about. It's not our remembering the Scriptures and being encouraged. Primarily what this is talking about is this is specifically to the apostles that Jesus knew he was leaving and he promises them that the Holy Spirit is going to come and is going to bring to your remembrance everything that I have said so that their words would be Jesus' words. The Apostle Paul, who considered himself the least of the apostles, is one untimely born because he didn't walk with the original twelve. The Apostle Paul was on the way to Damascus, or on the road to Damascus, on his way to kill Christians when he had a miraculous conversion and had a face-to-face meeting with the risen Jesus Christ. And in that face-to-face meeting, Paul was commissioned by Jesus, was given authority and power by Jesus himself, and therefore that makes Paul an apostle in first Corinthians chapter two, verse thirteen, the apostle Paul says this, and we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by who? Say it. The Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Apostles are those who have been commissioned directly by Jesus. Friends, listen to me. This is important. We would do well not to use this term of people today. There aren't modern day apostles. And it's, it's more than semantics. Some people say, oh, it's just semantics. We like to call our pastors apostles. Well, the Bible has an issue with that. Because somebody who claims to be an apostle is actually claiming to have received direct revelation and words and power and authority from Jesus Himself. And according to Scripture, that happened to these original twelve that birthed the New Testament church. And were actually writing the New Testament as they lived, as we read. It's not reserved for those today. But there's also another danger here. In almost every generation, and this is certainly prevalent today, there's what I like to call the red letter clan. You might hear something from the red letter clan like this, like, hey, I I mean, I I know Paul was probably a good dude, but he wasn't Jesus. So I'm not really worried about what Paul said. I'm just going to read the red letters. I'm just going to read what Jesus said. And again, that seems noble. You think, well, yeah, well, I I, I definitely want to know what Jesus said. But there's this idea that Jesus' words have more power than Paul's words. Well, Well, what this lets us know is that in the apostolic calling, the apostles' words were Jesus' words. So, look, I have no issue with the color red. Crimson, I do. Red, I have no issue with the color red. Okay, none. I don't care. If your Bible has red letters where Jesus talks, so be it. But listen, please, this is an important point of clarity. They're all red. This is the word of God. Paul's words are just as inspired as Jesus' words because Paul's words and the apostles' words were Jesus' words. And so... Now, the apostles' teaching is what one of the, the first thing they're devoted to. It, it's hard to say when you're talking about Bible, prayer, discipleship, mission—like what's the most important? I admit that, but I believe there's certainly nothing more important than a devotion to the Bible. And so, their new identity, their new belonging, and this new loyalty. What comes out of that is a devotion to the teaching of the apostles. And this commitment, friends, held all the other commitments together. As as you read through these verses, what we see is they had constant daily exposure to the Word. They had a hunger for the teaching of, of God's Word. I don't want to confuse you in saying this, but again, it's another important point to make. One fruit of or evidence of true conversion is how much hunger you have for God's Word. Anytime that I meet with someone and they're wrestling through, I don't know if I'm saved or if I'm a Christian. I did this when I was eight years old and now I'm 25 or I'm 30 or I'm 19 or I'm 77 and I'm just not real sure. I, I may not ask them point blank. Sometimes I do, but where I'm heading is... Like, how much do you love the Word? How, how much time have you spent in the Word? And, and, and if there's an indifference or just a lack of concern or a lack of care or, or desire for the Word of God, I'm not saying that they're not saved, but fruit or evidence of the Holy Spirit working in someone's life is a desire and a hunger for the Word of God. And these early Christians had daily exposure to the word, when the Spirit gets a hold of someone, there is often a desire to know more about the Lord. And they did this together. As they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, don't, don't think that this loyalty or this devotion was just about those, those intentional or designed gatherings where they heard the apostles teach. This, this overflowed into conversations, as we'll see in just a little bit. This overflowed into every area of life. And so friends, like, like we're a church that has a deep commitment to the Word of God. We're not perfect. We're not. But we do and try the best that we can to make the Word of God the center of everything that we do. And friends, look, what I love is that I'm looking into people's eyes that I know believe the same way. But listen, I, I don't want us to leave it Don't think too highly of yourself. We're capable of walking away from what's true. And so part of us being together is is accountability and remembering and reminding one another of the Word of God and, and, and reminding of the devotion to the Word of God that is birthed out of this belonging to Jesus. We belong to Him, so we want to know what He says. And and don't let us ever be so proud that when we go to the brother or sister that's in need that we think that our words are better than the Lord's words for them. I cringe a little bit every time I hear, like, they don't need to be, it's usually said, beat over the head with the Bible. And, And like, I know what you mean when you say that, but are my words better? Are yours? It's not more loving to keep the Bible closed when you're reaching out to people, it's loving to open the truth of God's word and to show a, a deep faith in it for not only your life, but to the life of the person that you're talking to. And so their first commitment was to the Bible. Their second, as I see it, and and if you study throughout Acts, you see that not only was a core value Bible, but there's a core value of of prayer. And here in, in verse 42, it says, they were devoted to the prayers. Now, it's interesting how that's phrased because it's not talking about, I don't think, spontaneous prayers. Even though there are spontaneous prayers throughout the book of Acts, nothing wrong with those, but it's specific in how it says this. They devoted themselves to the prayers. More than likely, these were prayers that had been written down generations before that had been passed down. And I think there's some beauty in that, but they prayed the same things over and over and over and over again and for generations. But why did they pray? They prayed because they knew that prayer was commanded as God's way of experiencing Him and fellowshipping with Him. They believed that prayer was commanded as God's way of to experience Him in fellowship with Him. Now, don't let commanded throw you off because we're North Americans. We're prideful. We don't like to be told what to do, right? Let's just be honest. And so sometimes we see command and we're like, well, I don't want to be commanded to pray. That makes it feel legalistic. Like, like I, I think prayer should be something that I want to do and that way it will be more meaningful and it will be more impactful. Like, like I get your logic there. But listen, the Lord is commanding something that is actually an ordinary means of grace for you and I. He's commanding something that's a tremendous gift to us. Prayer is the conduit. It's the conduit that we experience God's power and grace in our lives. I mean, think about this. On, on, on Christmas morning... When whoever bought you a gift says, go ahead, open it, open it, open it. I mean, that's a command, right? Do you begrudgingly open it? No. You obey the command because you know that it's a gift and it's something that's a blessing to you. And and prayer is the same. It's the same way. Nearly every time they gathered in Acts, prayer was happening. It's important to note that they had mixed results. Because again, we can think prayer, if I check this box, then I get this. Two plus two always equals four. And so if I do this, then God's going to do this. Well, let's just take a quick journey, quick journey through Acts and see what kind of results that they got. And there should be a slide there. There it is. What results came from their prayers? Well, in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas have just been Attacked, by a mob. They've been stripped down. They've been drugged to the inner part of the prison where the worst of the worst prisoners go. They're in stocks which means that their hands are fastened, their legs are fastened, just stretched out enough to be uncomfortable. And there they sit. And the Bible says at about midnight, they're not complaining, they're not arguing, they're not screaming cuss words at the guards. They're praying and singing hymns and praising the Lord. And it's in that moment that the Spirit of God moves, the earth shakes, they come out of their stocks and bonds. The prison doors fly open. The short story is even the jailer and his family are saved and baptized. They prayed for God to do something and God did it. Acts chapter 12, you see something similar. Peter has been arrested. Peter's in jail. Peter is in cuffs in a cell, and the church is gathered praying for Peter. And Peter gets this personal visit by an angel. His chains come off. He gets escorted out of the prison by the angel to safety. The angel disappears, and Peter just walks onto the house where everybody's praying and he goes, What are y'all doing? I'm paraphrasing. Somebody on the inside says, that's Peter's voice. The man that they prayed to be delivered, he was delivered. But then you have these results. Like in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is killed by stoning. If you read in Acts chapter 6, Stephen was just recognized as a righteous man, as a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. He was commissioned. They laid hands on Stephen and prayed for him. And in just 10 verses, he finds himself facing death. And then he preaches a beautiful sermon that doesn't end in 3,000 people getting saved. It ends with his head being pounded with rocks and he dies. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 Paul prays, he says, three times for this thorn in his flesh. So there was some physical ailment that Paul had that caused suffering. Paul believed that he could be more effective for the gospel's sake if the Lord would just take away this physical ailment. Paul prayed three times for it to be removed. It was not removed. And Paul, did he bail on prayer? Did he say the Lord's not faithful? No, he leaned into the sovereignty of God and believed and understood that the Lord just saw fit to teach him more of what it meant to be strong in Christ through this physical weakness. And so what the Lord provided through prayer, listen, friends, was either the power to be delivered from the present danger or the power to sustain through it. And so listen, When we pray, we pray in the same way they did. If if there's a tumor, we pray and we beg God because we know he has the power to remove it. Lord, if it be your will, remove that tumor. We know you have the power to do that. Lord, would you be so kind to deliver us from this present danger? And listen, sometimes he does, but sometimes he sees fit to leave the tumor. But our prayer doesn't change. Lord, If you don't see fit to remove the tumor, Lord, we pray that your power is displayed to give us the grace and the strength that we need to take the next steps until we see you face to face. And so the prayer of the church and the prayer of believers, it's, it's not like a slot machine. We always pray the same direction. Lord, display your power, either through physical healing and deliverance or sustaining grace to get through. And so, this belonging to Jesus meant that they desired to commune with Him through prayer. Bible prayer. The next one is discipleship. Now, you don't see discipleship directly mentioned here. And, and I think we struggle to see that because of our church culture. We think discipleship and we think programs, right? We think strategies and there's nothing wrong with programs and strategies and books to walk through together and all of that stuff is fine and dandy. But what we do see here is, is sort of uh, the foundation of what discipleship is, but also the foundation of where discipleship happens, And so, discipleship is clearly commanded by Jesus. Discipleship is clearly created by Jesus. And I think this is why we see it as the result in Acts 2 of what it means to belong to Jesus. And so, this happened, discipleship happened through normal activity. Okay? So, if there is truly a devotion to the Bible, truly a devotion to prayer these people, I don't really see a category for the person that's super amped about Jesus when they gather together for the apostles' teaching and then indifferent to it whenever they walk away from it, okay? And so there's a devotion to the apostles' teaching and there's a devotion to the apostles' teaching when they're not with the apostles. And it all has this umbrella of to whom this individual now belongs. And so if you belong to Jesus, there's never a time that you're not his. Whether you're at church with other believers, whether you're at work, whether you're at school. And so again, we need to fight against that and and, and understand that we're always a part of his family. And so, you see, I mean, you see words like, like normal activity. You see words like fellowship. You see words like together. You see words like day by day. You see ideas like being known. You see attendance. You see breaking of bread, the breaking of bread in communion in the worship, and then just like what we hope to do this afternoon, breaking of tacos together, just in fellowship. But these words and phrases clearly show how discipleship happens. And I'm going to state the obvious. It happens together. They're committed to be together. They're committed to know one another. And when you have a group of people who understand that they belong to Jesus and they're committed to the apostles' teaching and they're committed to prayer, praying for one another and praying together, discipleship happens. There's normal conversations about what it means to be His and about what He's done and about His promises. And so in the context of a devotion to the Bible and to prayer, discipleship is born. And you also see its fruit in this section and you see it in a a few key words and phrases. You see it in the words of generosity. You see gladness. You see that they had all things in common. And you see praise and you see awe. I want to speak to two of these. Generosity is the true test of our love for one another. And I know this can be uncomfortable to discuss, but it's worth it. And when I want to ask this question that I ask myself, well, what do you give up that others may gain? Because that's what generosity is. The thing about generosity that's tricky is that there's a sense in which you're the only one that knows if you're actually generous. You can appear generous. You can have all the boxes checked from my vantage point, And I can have all the boxes checked from your vantage point, but, but, but you're the only one who knows the resources that you have and how willing or unwilling you are to let go of some of those resources for the good of other people. And don't panic. I mean, nobody's going to be checking. All right, nobody's gonna, we're not gonna have a, a covenant partner meeting where we all lay our bank accounts and our resources and what we're worth and lay it all out there and somebody walk around going, definitely not generous, generous, so so, you could do better. It's not gonna happen. But what I'm asking, starting with myself, of all of us, is, is to evaluate this. It's a clear and present danger. It's an area that we're comfortable settling in. And in, in chapter 5, we see Ananias and Sapphira, as, as they're, they have, they're growing up in this context, and they want to appear generous, so they lie to the Holy Spirit about land that they've sold. But they want to appear generous. But they've lied to the Holy Spirit, and does anybody want to take a crack at what happens to them? They drop dead. Thankfully, that doesn't happen. But it happened. And so, friends, I don't want us to settle in this area. A fruit of discipleship, a fruit of understanding that we belong to Jesus is generosity. That's why Christ said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus spoke as much about money and the dangers of money and our love of money as he did anything else. From my vantage point, it seems that many at Covenant Church are excelling in this area. All I ask is that we evaluate our our lives. Next is this word, gladness. I actually love this. And so what I did with gladness is I, I, I first, I started with words. If you think of gladness as an umbrella or at the top of the pyramid, all of these other words that would come under this idea of gladness. And then I contrasted them um, with the opposite of what the word means. So I thought gladness, the very first word that came to mind was joy. The opposite of joy, I don't know if you're going to know what I mean here, is drab, like eeyore, like ho-hum. Do You have joy and you have drab. You have excitement versus indifference. And here's what I love about excitement because if, you can't be glad if you're indifferent. And in the context of church, it's so refreshing to see an excitement around the gospel. It's so refreshing to see people who are excited and glad and joyful about coming together to celebrate to whom we belong. It's confusing when there's an indifference. When you can just take it or leave it. Or there's no real excitement. Or there's obvious excitement about so many lesser things. When you're glad, you have excitement. When you're glad, you're you're positive. Now... I know the positive and neg- positivity and negativity, there can be like these real moments where something's really negative and we're trying to make them positive. Like that's not what I'm saying here, but I'm talking about just this bent toward being positive versus a bent toward being negative. A glad person doesn't have a bent towards negativity. Hope versus fear. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a very real one in our lives today. But it's very hard to be glad. It's very hard to have gladness when you're overwhelmed with fear. And the gospel brings hope. Gladness means you give the benefit of the doubt, versus the opposite of that, which would be assuming the worst. Let's just say Calvin. um, I I see Calvin and I go to shake his hand. He's like, "Hey, what's up, Hank?" And he just sort of walks off. And so me assuming the worst is I would go, "Well, is Calvin not like me anymore? What'd I do wrong? What'd I say wrong?" I go back and look at our text message and say, well, he could have misunderstood that. I didn't use an emoji or an exclamation point, but he's a grown man, so that shouldn't bother him. But like we do that. We struggle in that way. And and we automatically go to assuming the worst about one another instead of giving the benefit of the doubt. And instead of thinking all of these false things about Calvin, I continue to pursue him and love him and encourage him in the Lord. Somebody who's glad... Doesn't assume the worst. Cheering on versus competing. You know, that I know this may sound really motivational like speech talk, but I think there's something to it. Man, isn't it good to know that we're for one another? Like I'm cheering you on. In your business, in your endeavors, in your hobbies. Like I'm pulling for you. I want you to succeed versus competition. Because when you're competing against you someone with a smile on your face, you ultimately want to see them fail. And you want to see them fail for your own benefit and for your own glory so that you look better than they do. And that is wicked. I mean, the church should be a place, if there's going to be gladness, where I mean, we're rooting for one another. Like, like, and we let each other know that. Like, hey, I'm, I'm pulling for you, man for you. Keep working hard. I see what you're doing. Don't quit. And then the ultimate fruit of this discipleship, as you see in these verses, is all of the Lord in the praise of His name. Which is the point, is that God's name is praised and He is worshipped. The last core value, first you have Bible, prayer, discipleship, last you have mission, and I admit to you, I have to be quick here, I I felt like I was nervous about mission because I thought, man, am I going to have to like pull this out of nowhere? You know what I mean? Like, does it say mission? And the Lord just directed my attention to this phrase. I added to their number daily. What more do you want? That's mission. Again, we think mission, we think planning, strategy, sending, short term mission trip, long term. And and there's nothing wrong with those things. But this is what it means to be on mission. This is how the mission is fulfilled. The Lord added to their number. There were people saved and added to the family of God and understood who Jesus was and what he'd done for them. Now they belong to him as these believers lived in this way. I want us to pretend that this meeting right now is, is us meeting and planning to go together, all of us together, our families, everybody's going to an unreached place in the world that doesn't have the gospel, and we're going to take the gospel to them. Are we just going to have church on Sundays? No. No, you know why? Because we got to eat. Okay, And so because we have to eat, and are we just going to sleep on the porch of the church? No, no. We're, we're going to need places to live. And so part of that planning is going to be, all right, well, we need to find jobs. We need to get jobs. We need to find a neighborhood. I mean, maybe your kids are in school, maybe they're not, but, but, but you would find a place for the kids to either be in school or in some sort of extracurricular activity, and, and you would commit to meeting and discipleship, Bible, prayer, discipleship, mission, like all of those things are still your core values, and you would go to this unreached place, and you would plant yourself in that culture and in that society, and you would love one another well, and you would faithfully proclaim the gospel. Now listen, that sounds a lot like what we do right now, doesn't it? There is something, too, being called to a foreign place. And it's not the same as the mission that we're on together. But, friends, it's the same mission. It's the exact same mission. And, and what we see in Acts 2 is that as they went on together proclaiming the gospel, there was faith and repentance. They lived together and they learned together and they loved together. the Lord adds to their number. And then what's that last one? Repeat. Like you get up in the morning... And you go to school, you go to work, and you're looking for opportunities to proclaim the gospel. And then people sometimes respond to the gospel, and there's repentance and faith, and then there's loving and learning together, and then uh, the Lord adds to the number, repeat, like like you get up the next day, and, and you do the same thing. I mean, this isn't rocket science. The Lord hasn't kept it from us. It simply means we live out this reality of who we are and whose we are, and that we belong to Jesus. Something interesting Jesus says in John 13, 34, and 35, that I don't know if you've thought about in this way, but Jesus told his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now listen to this in light of mission. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So how will the world know that we belong to Jesus? Because we wear the t-shirt? Nope. Because we gather on Sundays, no, it's how we love. I I could be off here, but it seems to me the greatest evangelistic tool that Christ has given us is how we love one another. To be devoted to Jesus is to be devoted to his people. Often I get questions from young men that may say, Hank, I feel called into ministry. I feel like I want to be a pastor. And and, and there's some questions that I ask, but one question I'm going to get to soon is this one. How committed are you today to your local church? Or somebody may say, Hank, I feel called to foreign missions, and and that's exciting. You know, everybody just wants to just high-five and say, yeah, go, we'll support you. And look, we're all about that life, but a question that has to be asked and answered and something that has to be evaluated before you just send them off as this, you know, heroic missionary is, well, first, like, how committed are you today to your local church? Sometimes you hear, well, I mean, I love Jesus and all, but I just don't love His church, man. Okay, so, so you, you hate Christ's bride. Husbands, how's that fall on you? Somebody says, I hate your wife. There is nowhere in the Bible that gives us the ability to say, I love Jesus, but I don't love his church. She may not be pretty but she's his. There's no such thing as loving Christ and not loving his people. And there's certainly no such thing as loving the church and not loving Jesus. They're a package deal. And so the way that we do missions, no matter where you are on the globe, is the same. God's plan and design to reach the world with the gospel is through the local church. Men and women that he's called and gifted and placed geographically, all with the design and purpose and in the context of proclaiming and living the gospel. So Joseph, you can come on. And I believe when the church is committed to these values, she is the strongest. And, and friends, we desire to remain steadfast. To these core values together. Um, you have a book. It should be in front of you. Um, some of you may already have one of these, but, but these are our covenant partner process books. Covenant partners are our members. Uh, we don't use the word member. We use the phrase covenant partners. Um, and, and so it is a process. And, and, and so this is a book that we give families that say, hey, we desire to be a part of your church. And so we would first give them this book. And um, I mean, there's even a roadmap in here that kind of tells you how it, how it plays out and how it comes about. But, but the reason I wanted you to have one in your hand um, is for a couple of reasons. One, you may be desiring to be a part of this church. Two, you may be a part of this church. This is a great resource for you if people ask you about our church. And there's a primary reason. And the primary reason is on the back page. And it's the covenant that we've all committed to and vowed to together. Now, we do hope in the future to have an annual covenant affirmation renewal not sure the language that we'll use around it now we're not doing that today but it is something that we want to consistently remind all of us of is what it means for us to be the church together and look listen here's one part of this and I want to be clear this may not be the church for you we're okay with that okay like we we are okay with that but here's what we want to also be clear about if you're a believer You are to be a part of a local church. Jared said something last week in regards to how we function together, like you need my fruit and I need your fruit. It's for your benefit and for the benefit of the people that God has called you to serve alongside of. And so we can help you find a good Bible preaching, faithful church. It may not be this one and that's okay. But if it is this one, we want to be clear that we remember to be a follower of Jesus Christ not as individuals but together together and so all I ask this morning as you bow your heads if you would bow your heads is that you evaluate your life your family's life and I have I have zero ability to change hearts or minds or to convict but. Of God has all the ability necessary to work. And so, if the the Word of God this morning has penetrated your heart, I pray that you would respond in faith to God's Word. And Father, I pray that you would birth in us a passion for one another. God, and that passion is not one that's coming. One that comes from the reality that through the person and work of your son Jesus Christ that we belong to you. Together, all our failures and mess-ups were yours and we're a family. And so, Father, I pray that you would continue to give the people of Covenant Church a desire to be devoted to the Bible, to prayer, to discipleship, and to mission. With your strong arm, that you would keep us on track. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. We'd like to thank you for listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church Tuscaloosa. If you have any questions or would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at www.covchurchtusk.com or you can email info at covchurchtusk.com. God bless.